Hello, and welcome to The Unique CPA. I'm your host, Randy Crabtree. The goal of our show is to keep you at the forefront of the changing face of public accounting by having conversations with fascinating leaders and bringing you their stories, insights, and advice. The Unique CPA podcast is brought to you by Trimerit, the specialty tax professionals. Today, our guest is Jordan Goodman. Jordan chairs Horwood, Marcus, and Burke's state and local tax group and resolves state and local tax controversies for multi-state and multinational corporations, including Fortune 1000 clients with complex operations in industries such as manufacturing, retailing, financial service, e-tailing, broadcasting, and telecommunications. As both an attorney and a CPA, Jordan has a comprehensive view of tax planning issues and strategies. His experience and education enable him to deliver a creative, complete, and practical approach to limiting the full range of tax exposures. He was recently elected as a fellow in the Litigation Council of America, an invitation-only trial lawyers honorary society that includes less than one half of 1% of American lawyers. Jordan is one of the nation's most sought-after lecturers and authors on multi-state tax issues, controversies, and planning. He has lectured on numerous state and local topics before businesses and professional association. In addition, Jordan continuously creates and presents accredited state and local tax seminars throughout the country and has been recognized as an Illinois super lawyer by his clients and his peers. Jordan, thank you very much for being on the show and welcome to the show. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate it. That was a heck of an introduction, though. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, believe me, I, with everything I've seen online with you and seen in person, I've been at some conferences with you, I could have went on and on and on. And that seems to be the case with all my guests. Everybody, I'm very fortunate that I have these guests who have these huge resumes uh, uh, with a lot of achievements on it. So, yeah, I really appreciate you having here. And I'm really looking forward to the show today, too. A little bit different topic than we normally talk about. Today, we're going to get into uh, state and local tax issues or SALT, uh, among other things, I'm sure. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But what I'm really interested in is you were telling me a story last week. We did a little uh, pregame discussion last week uh, before the show, and you were telling me a story of how you got into this industry. And I'm guessing, you know, you didn't, uh, you weren't eight years old out on the baseball field thinking, I want to be a SALT attorney someday. (laughs) Well, I am going to correct you there. So my mom swears when I was six years old. Now, I was influenced by my dad, who was a tax person. So when I was six years old, my mom claims that I'm going to be a tax lawyer, having no idea what tax was or what a lawyer was, but my mom claims that that, was, that, that set me up in, on my path and you know, kind of led me to where I am. So I'm going to contradict you a little bit, but you know, what you say at that point is, you know, who knows, everybody wanted to be a fireman or a policeman or Superman back in those days too. So, you know, so what you've you been, said. You've been focused from uh, six years old. That's, <laughs> I, I'm pretty impressed with that. I'll have to take that statement back, I guess. Okay. Yeah, no, so that it did. But you really don't, I mean, being a tax lawyer in today's world means so many different things. And really how I got into state and local tax, I, I again, my dad, my dad was a tax person. He worked for uh, Edward Hines Lumber Company, among other jobs, and he was very involved. And I just, you know, you look up to your dad and you kind of follow his footsteps and our brains kind of work the same way. So I figured I'd be going towards that end. And through law school, um, I was an undergrad accounting, took the CPA exam, and then went into law school trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do and really didn't understand the tax world. And then law school really didn't clarify it. 
I knew that I wanted to be involved in taxes, but didn't know which one. So I talked to my dad and we spent some time talking about it. He said, well, where you should go, and this will date me a little bit. He said, you should go to a big eight accounting firm because they have these huge tax departments and you'll get a taste of a bunch of different things and you'll figure it out. And uh, like in so many other things, uh, and my wife, my dad was exactly right. I started at Arthur Anderson back when there was a big eight. Oh, yeah. And that puts it kind of in context. And they did. They gave us ample opportunity to go in a bunch of different directions to sample different projects. And I remember this when you first get out of school, and you may relate to this as well. Money is, while well, you're making more money than you ever have in your life, you're still cautious about rent. You're paying rent for the first time. You have all these other expenses. And I remember one of the ways that Anderson got people to show up for training or to new areas is they would offer food. So for the first year or so, you know, you would show up early for breakfast. They'd have danishes. You'd show up at lunch for training. They'd have sandwich trays, deli trays. And then occasionally there would be a dinner one and you would go whatever they had. But after a year of eating the same deli trays and danishes every time, you got a little bit more selective based upon the food they offered. And that's how you went to training sessions. At least that was my strategy. And I remember in, in 1986, they were having a training session at night. It was, I forgot even what they called it, but they were having Lou Malnati's Pizza, which is being from Chicago, being a deep dish pizza fan is my favorite pizza. So I said, I don't care if they're talking about zoo animals. I don't care. I'm showing up. So I showed up for this meeting for the pizza and they started talking about how this area, state and local tax was going to be a growth area for lawyers in particular. You would have constitutional arguments that it was just starting in its infancy states not all the states even had sales tax or income taxes but they're all jumping on board it was becoming a bigger deal and certainly through the tax acts in the 80s and the 90s where the federal rate was going to decrease and the state rates go up the marginal difference between federal and state were going to make a difference people were going to do planning and it sounded interesting so i started attending some of their meetings and 35 years later here i am this is all i do still with it. And, and the, the, the interesting thing to me, or the very exciting thing to me, is from what everything I can see and read and hear from you, this is a passion of yours. You really enjoy what you're doing. You know, and, and I have been very fortunate. You know, some people, and I, I, I look at my own kids, I've had three kids go through college, and, and you see my friends and their kids, they go to college and they don't know what they wanted to do. And whether it was because Jordan Goodman as a six-year-old said I wanted to be a tax lawyer and that was my driving force, or it just happened that way, I've been able to focus in on an area and then in a small part of that area of being a tax person into an area that has been everything that I was promised and more. And I, I find if you're, and, I, and I've had people that have worked for me who are just doing okay, like the commercial say, just okay isn't good enough. Right. And I ask them and they go, I just don't, I, you know, this is, it's work to me. And I go, that's the difference. I get up every morning and it's like reading the sports page. I look at the daily journals every day that come out on state and local tax. And I, I laugh, oh, look at this stupid case somebody brought. Oh, look at this decision. And it's, it is, it's interesting to me. It's, it's, it's part of my passion. I'm enthusiastic about it. And you get a bunch of tax, state tax people together. And one of the things we do is we talk about state tax. It's, it's craziness. But if you're fortunate enough and you find something that you're passionate about, everything seems to work out. It really does. Find your passion, push forward, do the best you can in it. And then for me, state and local taxes has been it. It really has. 
So what is the, what, what drives the passion? I mean, what, are, what do you find interesting about it? Obviously, I mean, you got federal tax code. Obviously, that's huge and everything. But you've got, right. what, 10,000 state and local tax codes or something like that? Well, it, it's, it's interesting because I, and this is, this is kind of how I thought about state and local tax for a long period of time. Let's just say, Randy, you're throwing a party. It's a great party. You've got a bunch of people there. In the middle of the room where there's a lot of fun going on, everybody's having a great time. Those are the normal people. And then as you get to the outskirts of the room, you've got people like us, accountants and lawyers, and then someone in the corner, all the tax people are hanging out together. And they're all, they're happy with each other, but they're all hanging out in the corner. And as you get deeper in the corner, you go through the international guys, which are the coolest guys. <laughs> and then you had the federal guys just inside them. And the guys who are pressed completely in against the corner are the state and local tax guys. That's how I, I grew up. <laughs> and, I, and I think that they're a hundred percent wrong. Everybody's missing out on this. As I tell people, state and local tax is just like international tax, except it's generally in English. English. We have all these different jurisdictions with all these different laws. And except for Louisiana, it's in English. I mean, Louisiana, sometimes it's not so clear. <laughs> so your the ability to do jurisdictional taxes, not just at the federal level, but the difference between Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Texas, California, they all have their own set of codes. There's some similarities, just as there is on an international basis. But I can pick it up and I can look online at anyone. I can read them in English and I can understand what they're talking about. And to me, that's why this this field has just ballooned up and become a just a you know a staple in the tax world. So to me, every time I talk to somebody about salt, it's like, you know, their eyes glaze over. It's like, okay, you know, we got to talk to someone else about that. That's their deal. And so so obviously there's a nice niche practice. Are you brought in by I'm assuming it's all of the above, but corporations to do work, CPA firms refer to you to do work. I mean, how, how, how do you go out, I guess, and get uh, business in this area? Well, there's a couple different ways, and that's a really good thing. So I was fortunate as a young person to have been brought to a couple of conferences or just opportunities to speak, and it's something that I feel I've gotten better at all the time, and the better you get at it, the more entertaining you are, um, you get opportunities. So I probably give conservatively 40 speeches a year uh, at various conferences. And that's something else that's really unique about the state and local tax community is that there are conferences going on every week somewhere in the country. Some of them are really large. There's an organization called the Council of State Taxations, COST. It's probably one of the preeminent ones. There's TEI, state and local tax. There's IPT that has state and local tax. Those are kind of the big organizations. And down below them, you've got local places, conferences that are put on. And if you are, you know, just as, as you are, are not reading code to people, you're not reading your slides, you're telling stories, you're a little bit animated. For me, it's easy to be passionate about what I, what I care about. You get invited to these things. So a lot of the times, I get calls from people I don't necessarily know or remember, but they've seen me speak on a topic and they have a question. And, you know, that works out that well. And then, of course, referral sources. I work with a lot of, of, of CPAs who have uh, all CPA firms who usually have one or two big clients that have issues. I like to get involved with those. Um, there's some national CPA organizations that have me come present on their annual tax conferences on the state and local tax side. 
And our cases are in the news. Our cases go before the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, one we might, I'm sure we'll hit on some point, is this Wayfair decision that came oh, out yeah. in June 2018. It affected people. You know, at a cocktail party, talking about tax law doesn't make everybody want to stand next to you. But when you tell them you're going to have to start paying taxes and everything you buy online, they're like, whoa, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Yep. And all of a sudden you have something that you could that they can relate to. Well, I was going to ask you what are the hot topics that you're dealing with today. And I'm guessing, obviously, Wayfair, even though it's, what, almost two years now? So there has to be a big topic as well. So is well, that is that one we want to expand on? Or are there other issues that are exciting areas? It is. It is. And, I, and I'll try to give you a, a kind of an example. So um, the one thing I like about this topic and this area that I practice is that for every time something closes, you know, the expression a window opens or a door opens, something opens, something closes. It happens in state and local tax because there's such a plethora of issues that are unresolved uh, for a long period of time. Now, I, I was fortunate. I've worked on three Supreme cases that have gone up to the Supreme Court, which is a fascinating process. I would encourage anybody out there who is an American or wants to be American or wants to understand our judicial system to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Watch your five minutes of the arguments before the court. It's fascinating. Uh -huh. I've been so fortunate. Three of the cases I've been involved in have gone up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So you see them go up there, one of which uh, in 1992 uh, was the Quill case, which was the predecessor to Wayfair. So that was uh, the partner I worked for at the time, Jack Cagini, argued that before the U.S. Supreme Court case, and we won. Yep. Wayfair went the other way. I was at the oral argument because I'm been invested in this for 20 something years on the state tax side and and it's just a fascinating process but so everybody's generally subject to tax everywhere but i had two calls today from online sellers who want to know what they should be doing and the states have contacted them and they want to know how to respond to it and what should they be doing with their business so the work from that continues on so certainly it's all under this label of nexus, a jurisdictional question as to whether a state can impose their taxing authority on you, on their tax laws on you. And what the Supreme Court basically said in, in Wayfair was, yes, they could. If you have enough sales into the state, regardless of whether you're there or not, again, well, that has a bunch of ramifications in, in different areas. But there's so many different areas that come up. We used to argue about business and non-business income, and it's kind of this goofy income tax concept of – and here, let me just step back for one second. Yeah. So on the federal level, it's relatively easy. If a business makes a million dollars, they look at the federal rate on their million dollars and they pay it. On the state side, you've made your same million dollars, but you've got customers and people all over the country. And the question is, how much did you make in each state? And the whole point of on the income tax side of figuring out how much you make on a state is how do you divide up that million dollars between the 20 different states where you have customers or you have property or you have people located. And that's a lot of what I do on the income tax side is try to work with the states, uh, work with the way that they interpret their laws, they write their laws to figure out under this formula of the million dollars, how much comes to your state and are you entitled to that? And the good thing is, just like in international taxation, not all, very few of the states have identical statutes. And even if they have identical statutes, they have different interpretations of the words based upon case law, common law in that state. So I'm dealing with at least 50 jurisdictions that are trying to tax the same income and we fight against them. Oh, yeah. So there's the defense side and then there's the planning side on the planning side for people like you, people in the accounting industry, they do a lot of this is how do we take advantage of the differences between the state tax statutes between one state and another? Is there a way to set it up that we don't pay either one or pay less or so there's another aspect of it.
So how much, what percentage of your time is on the planning compared to the defense, do you think? I would say uh, more on defense now than it used to be. The practice has evolved. When I started doing this, I was involved at the audit level. Uh, when initial audits, you get involved with the auditor, you go through the work papers. A lot of that is being done either in-house or by the accountants. And when there's an issue that comes up, I get involved sometimes behind the scene and then at some point where they get a notice or they have to protest it or it becomes more formal, that's more when I get involved on the defense side. But I would say, you know, right now defense is maybe 65 to 70%, 30% are people still coming. How do I go about planning this? Where do I set up? What state should I move to? How do I prove on a residency question that I'm now a Florida resident, not an Illinois resident, so I don't have to pay taxes on my investments in Illinois. Right. Uh, that's on the planning side. And then uh, his Wayfair, is that caused that shift to more of a defense side, you think, or is it other something else? I, it has, and it's just, just the nature of the states, and it's something that's not a secret out there. Um, our home state, Illinois, and the Midwest, and almost all the states are hurting for revenue, and they go through these cycles of becoming very aggressive, going after creating issues, taking a new spin on an old statute or an old regulation, and going after an entire industry. For example, this is how things kind of pop up. A number of years ago, there was a state that did an investigation of all the dentists in in their state because dentists buy gold and bond and whatever else they do, and they're really performing a service. Did they pay sales tax on the gold and the bond they put in your mouth? Or did they charge you for it, not collect it? So they went after all the dentists. All wow. of a sudden, every dentist in the state gets a notice. You're going to be under audit. We want to look at your purchases. We want to look at your sales. Things like that happen. Um, right now, you know, a lot of the states are looking at foreign investment here, repatriating of, of foreign income, which is a big deal at the federal level, of how the states are going to do it and how the companies are reacting to that. That's going to be an issue for the next five to ten years of what gets repatriated. I'm curious on that dentist uh, uh, issue. Were dentists either paying or, or charging sales tax? Any of them are of small no, percentage? It, no, basically they were not. Um, yeah. There was a big issue with that. And, and that's why the state, you know, they ordered one dentist and saw they didn't pay any tax on stuff that they bought. And right. at that time, it, they weren't sophisticated. They weren't multi-doctor offices. And they just kind of, okay, I buy it. I put it in the mouth. Fine. I didn't get charged tax. I'm reselling it. I didn't collect tax on the resale. Right. Oh, right. When, so yeah, when they and, thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why you're you out know, there. Those are the kind of programs states come up with. And so, you know, there's always uh, an evolution. There's always something interesting going on. I mean, and the cases are so much fun. I mean, just for example, here's a, a planning idea that we came up with a number of years ago. I had a very wealthy client that bought a painting for his wife in London in an auction, multiple millions of dollars. Okay, and this happens. Yep. What happens? They live in Chicago. They bring it back to Chicago, and it goes through customs. Okay, so customs, you got to pay some duties on it when you bring it back. Right. The federal government notifies Illinois. Hey, they just brought back a ten million dollar painting. Um, they didn't pay Illinois use tax on it, right? Which you would do normally. You would have to owe because you just brought a, an asset worth ten million dollars into the state. You owe use tax on it. We yep. came up with a planning idea. If it's a gift and you bring it back into the state, there's no tax due. Wow. So we created, and this was probably true, the one spouse bought the gift in London, gifted it to their spouse in London, and then the spouse brought it back. 
Now, does that affect the uh, estate tax planning at all? Does that reduce it, uh, anything on there? Well, and then, then, then there's no use tax due. And okay. if you're talking about a six and a quarter percent tax on a $10 million painting, the savings is quite significant. Yes, it now, is. Right. So there's, there's ideas like that that come out that are just fun. It's really yeah. lots of fun. Yep. That, yep. That's the planning side, the creative side, not just the defense side. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, when you and I talked last week, I think you and I are somewhat similar. I, I you know, I have a passion uh, for what what I do as well, and and I find the fun part is looking at the, and and, and most people think you know I'm pretty geeky with this, but I'm reading the court cases, seeing how we can apply this, seeing how this affects our clients, seeing if there's additional potential for for benefit, and it's just to me, it's just you know. Saving people money is fun. Oh, no, and it, 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 it's, it's, you know, I've always loved games. It is, and I'm not calling taxes a game, but the strategy games that we used to play as kids, it's really the same thing. Here's a set of facts. Here's what the rules are. Can you think of a, a creative way of looking at these um, that might be right? And we look at statutes for the first time and say, hey, that word doesn't necessarily mean what the state thinks it does. Can we show that it means something else? And that's the fun part. I, I'm with you a hundred percent on that. Yep. That's what you know. That's what motivates us every day. Oh yeah, certainly not monotonous in any way. No, I agree completely. And, and like you, I go out and do a, a forty or fifty presentations a year or two, and and that's just fun. And I think I'm a good uh, entertaining the audience. And if not, I know I'm entertaining myself. So, uh, and that's that's the first step. Yeah. No, no, and and I'm sure that your favorite ones and my favorite ones are ones where I'm I'm making a presentation, and all of a sudden, you know, the hand goes up, yeah. and a conversation oh, yeah. starts. And then we're talking about questions related to the topic, and everybody in the room is interested because everybody has that same question, but a lot of people won't raise their hands. Those nope. are the best presentations you can have. I had one last summer. Uh, so did you ever go to the uh, – wait, were you at Arthur Anderson? Is that what you said? I was at Arthur Anderson. And did you ever go to the training center in St. Charles, Illinois? I I absolutely did, right when they first opened it. Did you? When they All bought right. it and redid it. Yes, I was out in St. Charles for a couple of years. Well, I did a presentation there last summer, and it was a group of CPAs, partners from smaller firms. Probably I had 75 to 100 people in the crowd. Five minutes in, you know, I do the introduction. I always tell everybody, hey, any questions, interrupt me anytime. You know, I don't care if I'm in sentence, interrupt me, ask a question. And that's, that happened. And this went in a total different direction yeah. than, than I had planned. And it was the most fun I ever had in the presentation. And the whole hour was me answering questions. And it, we still were able to flow into all the topics, but that's so much fun. I get called on this sometimes because this is one of those requirements for CLE, CPE, you got to have a PowerPoint. And I'm not yep. a fan of PowerPoints because it's somewhat restrictive in the conversation. But it is, I won't say it happened, it has happened more than once, and I don't know what the upward maximum would be, where you start on the first slide and you never make it to the second slide. <laughs> and and yep. I will tell you, those are the best presentations I ever give. Yep, I think that's a great sign of a great presentation. So, and and I've unfortunately have not heard your presentations. I know we're going to be probably at some conferences together this year, so I am definitely going to sit on them, sit in on them, and I'm looking forward to that. So now there's pressure on you. I'm looking for entertainment, just so you know. <laughs> I'll try. If nothing else, I know I'll be passionate about whatever I'm talking about because that's the go. easy part. There you go. I'd like to go back for a second. Uh, uh, sorry, we digress there for a minute. I'd like to. I'd like to go back for a second to the that Quill um, um, yes. Supreme Court case just from, mm -hmm. and I don't think, I don't know, you already mentioned you're from Chicago. I think people have heard I'm from Chicago. Quill's a company that's in the, the northern suburbs of Chicago, correct? 
Yes, that's correct. So my wife used to work there, actually, and I think she worked there probably a little bit before 92, which is when this case was going. But I Mm -hmm. remember this case just in general. Um, Yes. So how how long does that, from start to finish, you know, we we, we start to argue and then get to the Supreme Court. Is this a, a long process? Actually, in that case, because of the structure that was set up, it was relatively short because I would say normally it's five to seven years from court decision to Supreme Court decision. That was about three years, two and a half to three years. One, because it was uh, done on stipulation of fact. It really needed no fact witnesses. There's it's just all argument because it was a legal question. The facts were, were put into evidence. Okay. okay. Here's a company located in, in uh, Lincolnshire, Illinois, since back in the day, flyers and catalogs into North Dakota. And here's our customers and here. So that was all done by stipulation of facts. So it's just an all argument. The lowest court called the Superior Court in North Dakota held in our favor, said National Bell says, says you have to have physical presence. Therefore, we're going to hold in your favor and gave us a relatively quick decision. What sped it up in North Dakota is that there's a direct appeal. There is no appellate court a direct appeal to the North Dakota Supreme Court. The state immediately appealed it, went to North Dakota Supreme Court, and within, I'm going back a couple of years now, so nine, 12, maybe 14 months, we were before the North Dakota Supreme Court, and they came out with a decision very fast um, and almost threw down the gauntlet to the U.S. Supreme Court saying, they said that the world has changed, economic presence is the right standard, and this is back in the 90s that, you know, National Bell Test doesn't make any sense anymore. You've got large, um, on, not online, but online, uh, very large catalog companies. Catalog, yep. And catalog companies, and so they reverse the Superior Court and basically challenge the U.S. Supreme Court to hold differently that the world hasn't changed since 1950s to the 1990s. Okay. And the Supreme Court, uh, you know, we filed a writ of, of appeal within the 90 days. They took the case. We argued it. And they had a decision before the end of the term. So it was really quick in today's standards. And how long are you arguing in front of the, the judges at the Supreme Court? Oh, it's, it's quick. You have, I believe, don't hold me this, I believe you have 20 or 25 minutes for your entire argument, and that's your presentation and your rebuttal. And you can reserve time. What most, most uh, practitioners who practice before the Supreme Court do is if it's 20 minutes, they'll argue for 15 minutes, respond to questions, and reserve the rest of their time for rebuttal after the other side goes. That's what I think. Very quick. Very quick. And so obviously you give them a whole packet of information as well that then they spend time going through. Oh, absolutely. And so the way it works is you file a writ of certiorari, which is an appeal, a discretionary appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they get thousands, tens of thousands of those every year. And they pick a handful. And then what you need is four justices to agree that the court should hear your case. Four of the nine. If four of the nine say, yes, we should hear the case, they hear the case and they schedule it. But it's, you know, a half. It's 2% of all cases filed with the Supreme Court get heard by the Supreme court right very very rare and tax cases are not their favorite okay no none of the justice they're unbelievably smart people yep. well-rounded people great lawyers but they're none of them are tax people right right and so, so you know it's a it's a rarity when we get cases up there 
And then the precedence that this set was basically, and I'm going to, I'm probably going to butcher this, but basically that, that they did Quill didn't have to charge sales tax on these out of state sales, or is that what the deal was or what was the. Correct. What, what they said is, is under the commerce clause, which is uh, Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce among the several states. I mean, Congress can make it do whatever they want. They could pass a law that, Unless you had physical presence, they called it substantial nexus, but physical presence in the state as a out-of-state seller, you did not have to collect tax on sales into the state. All right. And now Wayfair has pretty much completely changed Wait, that ruling or what? It, it, it not only changed that ruling, it went back and overruled National Bellis Hess, which was I think was 1959, um, and said all those cases are wrong. The world's changed. We should never have held that way. Um, economic nexus is really a reality. South Dakota, your your standard of $100,000 of sales or 200 transactions is close enough. We're not going to tell you if it's perfect, but we think it's good enough for constitutional uh, purposes, and therefore uh, you can make everybody who has more than $100,000 of sales into your state start collecting and remitting use tax. And now, are all states following that same basic premise, or are they coming up yeah. with their own rules? Yeah, no, this is the most remarkable thing, is that, so there's only 46 states that, uh, the nomad states, they're, it stands for an acronym for New Hampshire, uh, nomad, uh, New Hampshire, I know it's no, Either Delaware, Oklahoma, Alaska, or Ohio Montana. Or okay. No, it's not Oklahoma, it's not Ohio. Oh, um, okay. Don't, don't, collect, don't have a sales tax. So, Everybody okay. else does. Yep. So 45 states, including District of Columbia, all have sales tax. And they, within a year, from June of 2018, literally through a year of 2019, something like 42 of the 45 states had passed Wayfair laws. A little bit different in each one, but Wayfair laws. Basically, $100,000 of sales and 200 transactions into the state. Texas is a little bit different. California is a little bit different. Massachusetts, the thresholds are a little bit higher in those states, but essentially the same thing, an economic standard. X number of sales or X number of transactions means you're subject to tax in those states. So it's an or, not an and, not a 200 it's, sales it and 100,000. It's or. It's it's primarily an or. You know, you're asking a lawyer to give a specific answer <laughs> on, a, on a multiple choice question. And I'm like, ah, it depends. All right. But it is primarily or. And actually, a couple of states have done kind of the enlightened thing and gotten rid of the second half based on transactions because as we uh, it was argued before the US Supreme Court uh, Etsy its average sale is $13 okay I think it was $11 back then, $13. 200 transactions is $2,600 of sales into the state. So for $2,600 of sales, you're having them collect, remit, report, and all the expense of filing, of filing returns right. every month in the state. So some states have realized that and have gotten away from the number of transactions, and they just focus on the dollar amounts. All right. That kind of makes sense. I mean, dollar, to me it does, but I don't know. You know, and, and from a realistic perspective, and this is what the court focused on, we created this loophole from out-of-state sellers. Does it make sense anymore to still give them that tax benefit? Yep. Because you're talking about billion-dollar sellers. Right, right. Now, are you in what would be the word agreeing with the way that this transaction or this ruling went down or or is there a way to argue this still or is this pretty much it this is us going forward i think and, and i 
you know, I, I may make some of my clients angry with this. <laughs> I think the decision, ultimately, this is the right decision. It was a 5-4 decision at the U.S. Supreme Court on the specific case in front of them. Five justices said that the Wayfair law, uh, South Dakota law, was correct. Uh, four did, did not want to do it. But they agreed it was time to overturn Quill. It was 9-0 in favor that Quill was the wrong law now. Okay. Four of them thought Congress should step in and pass a uniform law and give guidance to the state and a starting point to the, to the businesses so that everybody is on the same level playing field from a point certain, here's what it's going to take to be subject to tax. But everybody thought it should be over. And if you think about it, and I'm not going to disparage some of the marketplaces out there, but they're pretty large, sophisticated, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue businesses. They shouldn't have an advantage just because they don't have physical presence in the state. It doesn't yeah. make any sense from an economic perspective. And I think that's what the court saw. It was time. The way they rolled it out was a little bit chaotic and risky versus having Congress do it. But Congress had from 1992 until 2018 to have come up with a solution, and they hadn't. All right. Yeah. Well, I guess it was. It, it makes sense. It was time. We the, the world has changed um, <laughs> at this point with all the e-commerce and everything. So, so something I guess needed to be done. I mean, during this period of time when you got bored listening to me talk about taxes, you could have ordered a car online, <laughs> right? That's true. It, it's, it's crazy. So, you know, you compare that to the 50s when National Bell's Hess was originally argued where you had mom and pop catalog stores would take you three weeks to get a stapler from someplace around the country and you had to send a money order. It just doesn't work that way. Now we take our phones out and we order whatever we want to be delivered that day. Yep, that makes complete sense to me. I am no, by no means an expert on salt at all, and so this is very interesting to me. Obviously, I can see where you could be extremely busy for a long time right now with uh, with not only Wayfair. I mean, uh, I, so, so the question I did not ask, does Wayfair mm -hmm. not only affect sales tax, does it affect income tax too, or how does that work? See, you are intuitively a genius because that's the right question to ask, okay. honestly. <laughs> Because the question and what's going on, the debates among the states, taxpayers and practitioners is, okay, for Wayfair, that was a use tax collection case. Or actually in South Dakota, it was a sales tax, but let's not get into the nuance yep, of the yep. difference there. Um, as long as you have economic presence, sufficient economic presence, you're subject to tax in that state. Should it be the same thing for income taxes? Well, really, since 1993, there was a case called Jeffrey out of South Carolina that said a trademark holding company, which was a planning idea that, that kind of grew up in the 80s and the 90s, was subject to tax in South Carolina, even though it didn't have any physical presence, but it had economic nexus in the state. It had customers in the state. And that theory has been driven on the income tax side a lot longer than it was on the sales tax side. There is a series of cases dealing with credit card banks. Credit card banks send out millions of pieces of mail every year, getting everybody to use their credit cards, and they let people use them. They have no presence in the state. You use the credit card, and they you pay on an annual basis, or you pay interest on a monthly basis if you don't pay it off, so they derive income in the state. Is that out-of-state bank subject to tax in your state? There's been a number of cases that have held that they are. So on the income tax side, it's gotten to about the same point, but from a completely different perspective. Okay. All right. So, yeah, I can see, uh, I guess, see, there's a lot of work out there for you for a long time. You, I don't I'm think hoping. You're gonna, well, I was going to say, I was, uh, you're never going to be able to retire. So, but if you're enjoying what you're doing, then, uh, uh, then that's all right. 
Exactly right. No, and that's and but that's the evolution. As I mentioned, you know, I've been doing this since about 1986 full time, and so what is that? 20, 24, and 20, so 40, no, 34 years. So it's 34 years. It's never been the same. And in five years from now, it's going to be different than what I'm doing now. The issues that I'm arguing, yep. where I'm arguing it, are going to change. And that's what's so great about this. It's always uh, evolving, changing, challenging. Uh, my clients have changed. The ideas of that we've come up with have changed. And if you could find something that you like doing and it's not the same every day, my goodness, how lucky are you? Yep. No, I agree. I think, uh, I think we're going to have to start to wrap things up. Uh, I could go on. And uh, again, I, I, I can act kind of geeky when it comes to tax. So I could keep going on forever and maybe we'll do this. Uh, uh, maybe you and I can do this in person, at least uh, at one of these, you know, get a bite and a drink or something. And, and uh, I was thinking the same thing, Randy. I've enjoyed our conversations and we, we've talked and I think we have a lot in common. Yeah, we do. So we'll have to get together. Well, it's nice that we're both uh, in Chicago, although I know we both travel a lot. Uh, um, so we'll, 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 we'll figure that out. Um, one thing I like to do before we end is, and I didn't warn you ahead of time, so I'm putting you on the spot, but talk about a fun fact about you. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's a, you know, are you a marathoner or are you, a, a, you know, collect uh, matchbox cars or something? I mean, is there any fun facts that people should know about you? Okay, fun facts. Um, I love doing things outdoors. I'm an avid fisherman. I hunt with my friends in Texas. Um, I've run 20-something marathons. You are a triathlons. marathoner. Wow. I do. I mean, I, I usually now train only in the winter because it's easier yeah. to run outside in the winter because yeah, it's not as so. hot. You don't need as much um it's better provision. on your joints, probably too. But better on your joints, and I do it. I, I just enjoy it. Um, I've got a group of friends I've been running with now. Uh, we were at a party. We all had a little bit too much of celebration, <laughs> and we agreed to do a marathon. And I've been doing one ever since. So wow. it's it's fun thing to do. And uh, you know, and most importantly, I love my family. I think my family likes me. We spend a lot of time <laughs> together. Yeah, well, that's great. And you're the second straight guest who's a marathoner on the show. Oh. So we talked about that the last show uh, as well. You know, I think there's a discipline among tax people, among accountants, uh, people, you know, of like us. So I, I think it fits in that training feels good. It gives you, you know, things to cross off. Yep, I agree. Every and day. We talked about this with my last guest, but I, I have a knee replacement, so I can't run, but I work out six days a week. It's just something I feel yep. I have to do. So I, I think that's great. And I think you're right. I think that just keeps us focused on things as well, you know, to be able to do that. Before we close then, uh, any way, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going to want to hear a lot more about you or have questions for you or just look you up. Is there a way people can get a hold of you or, you know, on the website or, or what's the best sure. way? Sure. I mean, probably the easiest way. Uh, our, our firm has a website. It's H. It's Howard Marcus and Burke, but it's HMBLaw.com. You can see what all the rest of my firm does. Um, I'm in the state and local tax area, SALT for short, and it's relatively easy. Or you could Google my name. There are two Jordan Goodmans that come up. One is a very famous and I, I believe very wealthy economic writer, and then I'm the other one. Yeah, I, well, I did a little research beforehand, and I, uh, I had to weed through the other uh, uh, Jordan Goodman to, to make sure I was uh, looking at your uh, story. So, yes, the, be careful which one you're looking at there. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank you again. This has been great. I really enjoyed it. I uh, appreciate you being on the show. And uh, I just want to thank everybody else out there for listening. And everybody have a great tax season. All right. Thanks, Randy. Really appreciate it.
At this point, I'm going to sign off. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Uh, you can find all the links and show notes for today's episode, as well as more about Trimerit at theuniquecpa.com. Uh, remember to subscribe and join us for our next episode, where we will bring you another interesting guest and hear their stories and insights.